This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, What's up, I'm your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm Dina E.D., and I bring you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. You know how we do it. We have a special, special episode. We have some cool stuff, and this is part of our Talks Month. You guys can get lucky. You're going to get to skip one of the experts in the field talking to you about the topics that you guys chose online. You guys chose, you want to hear toxic alcohols. You guys want to hear a lot of these things. So let's go ahead and jump into this episode. But before we do that, we got to let our guest introduce himself and tell us a little bit more about because it's going to be a great episode. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, my name's uh, Tom Machulevich. Uh, I go by Tom Mack. It's a lot simpler with a lot few, fewer letters. Um, I'm originally from uh, the Northeast up in New York. Uh, I found myself uh, where I am right now. I'm down in Arizona. Uh, it's, it's a lot warmer here, uh, a lot more snakes, a lot fewer squirrels. Um, and so I just finished up my toxicology fellowship um, in June. And uh, right now uh, I'm hanging around to do more stuff with snakes. Uh, so it's really exciting to be here. And I'm, thanks for having me, Jimmy. Oh, thanks. You're going to, I feel like this is a long time coming. So super excited to get this going. Before we jump into it, though, again, always got to make sure we, we get some of our announcements out of here. Of course, you guys have been to the Empower RX conference that happened in May. That was phenomenal. We're already in works and planning the next steps. If you guys are interested in joining our committee, if you guys are interested in going back and reviewing the last two years of what we've created, go ahead and, and visit EmpowerRx/conference.com and check us out there. And for those that are moving forward and just saw everyone get BCMP certified or BCCP or BCPS, all those extra comments behind your name. You looking for stuff like that? Let us know. We got some stuff like that at PackU.com and we can really help you guys out from a board certification prep standpoint. But again, let's go ahead and jump into the tox world and talk about toxic alcohols. Again, a topic that just isn't interesting, but vital for everyone. Again, emergency medicine, toxicology, intensive care. Again, we're going to be joined by an expert that's going to lead us into this, but let's go ahead and transition. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into some of the background with all this. I'm great to have you here, but let's set the stage. Can you give us a basic overview of what we're dealing with? When we say toxic alcohols, people say those terms, but realistically, not all of us know what that means. So what makes them toxic and how do they generally affect patients? Yeah. So toxic alcohol is really any alcohol, even the stuff, you know, when you go to the corner store and you grab a beer or you go to the bar and you get a drink, ethanol, that's still a toxic alcohol, right? It has an effect. It makes you feel inebriated. If you have too much of it, you can certainly uh, meet your demise. Um, but in the world of toxicology, um, typically when we're talking about toxic alcohols, we're referring to substances that are not intended for consumption. We think of things like methanol, ethylene glycol, uh, isopropanol. Um, and these can be found in products like windshield washer fluid, cooking fuels like sterno, paint removers. Uh, people have been known to uh, inhale large amounts of things like carburetor cleaner or drink antifreeze. Uh, there's rubbing alcohol, like all these things that you can find. And so we're not supposed to be drinking these things. And thus, we have some toxic effects from these. And really, the hallmark toxicity of, of these substances is typically a metabolic acidosis with a high iron gap. 
And this is due to an accumulation of organic acid anions. Um, patients can generally be affected in various ways, and this depends on the offending agent um, that you have, whether it's methanol, ethylene glycol, or isopropanol. Um, and it can really go from a severe AKI or renal failure to life-threatening cardiovascular or CMS complications. So um, big, big topic. Yeah, tons of different stuff on there. And I think that, again, setting that background for us really helps us out. But we start thinking about a deeper dive into the specific alcohols. You start to get into the particular ones. And I think all this is fascinating to see the diversity and how these toxic alcohols can present. Now, let's say, again, again, we start thinking about the specific ones like methanol and ethylene glycol and isopropanol. Uh, could you, can you kind of dive a little deeper into each one of these and how they can manifest in our patients? Because, again, there may be some particular differences again, an expert would know. Yeah, sure. So these things can be complex and they've been pretty well studied over the past decades. And so I'll give you some general things and I'll give you a couple specific things. But just know there's a lot of a lot of weird and strange things can happen with these exposures with outcomes. But we'll start off first with methanol. So this gets, um, you know, when we say these toxic alcohols, it's usually not the parent compound that's causing problems. It's what it gets metabolized to the toxic metabolite is, is the culprit, really. So when we start with something like methanol, we have alcohol dehydrogenase that, you know, converts it over to formaldehyde. And then we have aldehyde dehydrogenase, and this gives us formic acid. And this is the culprit that causes the hallmark metabolic acidosis. Um, and depending on the pH, you know, where you are in this toxicity and how it gets, you know, consumed and metabolized, the more acidotic the patient is, the more you get this dissociated form present, um, which is our formic acid versus, you know, formate, which is undissociated. Um, so when we have these people, um, you'll hear about some treatments, you know, I know <laughs> you, you hate bicarb, right? You know, it's like always <laughs> like bicarb is trash, you know? Um, so this is one of the, you know, the points where you It's going to trap the formate into the blood or essentially pull it away from the tissues as best it can. Um, and that's because formate in itself, um, even though it's, you know, you've gone from formic acid to formate, that in itself is still toxic. Toxic. It can uncouple oxidative phosphorylation over cytochrome C oxidase. Um, and it has, you know, other really wicked effects of visual impairment, the snowfield vision or complete blindness. And some of this, you know, when we talk about the visual effects, be immediate, um, or when I say immediate, within a few days of exposure, um, or they, it can happen clinically. So this can happen and push out from weeks to months. Um, I've had patients that come in that have been chronic methanol exposures, and you know when they come in, um, they will report some changes in their vision acutely. I've had other patients that don't, um, you know, so it's really different on that forefront. Um, so this pathway is a, is a gnarly, crazy one. Um, but one of the theoretical things we can do um, that has very little risk to it is give um, folate IV. And typically, we do about a gram, uh, reduce, I'm sorry, uh, a mg per kg up to 50 milligrams, Q6 hours. Um, this is thought to help kind of process the formate um, to CO2 in water. Um, but like everything else in tox, it's there's not a lot of data on it. But, you know, we do it because the risk is low and the benefit is, hey, we'll take it in these exposures because they're pretty serious. Um, also with methanol, there's been historically a high rate of pancreatitis, uh, some reports up to 
um, associated with this toxicity. So you should be checking lipases and LFTs in these patients as well. Um, but the big concern and the big worry that has me like always really worried uh, big time is with methanol, you can get really pretty severe CNS toxicity. And what I'm talking about is basal ganglia lesions, necrosis and herniation of the Putin and even intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, I just had a kid, we just had a kid this recently, um, a couple days ago. A um, patient had a massive um, meth, uh, methanol exposure and he went, you know, straight to this pathway. Um, these are, you know, you can't, you can't fix brain tissue. Once, once it's damaged like this, you're done. So that's kind of my overall scope of methanol. Uh, we'll go through some other things later on, but I want to just kind of give you like the general where it can go and start from. And now we have ethylene glycol. And so alcohol dehydrogenase gets that um, to uh, glycoaldehyde, and then aldehyde dehydrogenase gets you to glycolic acid that gives you a metabolic acidosis as well. Um, it's further metabolized to oxalic acid. Um, this binds up calcium in the system, and this form, forms oxalate crystals um, that can be found in the kidney. This is what leads to an AKI in these patients. Um, and you will also see some calcium oxalate crystals on the from time to time. This isn't a diagnostic feature to show up, but if you don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, there's been death cases, you know, where in, in these fatalities where they do autopsy, they try and oxalate crystals in the brain, the heart, the kidneys, they find this stuff everywhere in really bad cases. Um, so yeah, that's pretty bad. Um, and then, you know, I talked about folate, you know, are there vitamins and things that we can do in ethylene glycol exposure? Um, so B6 or pyridoxine, magnesium and thymine in theory can help shift the metabolism of glyoxylic acid to a less, you know, toxic metabolites that can be, you know, eliminated renally. Um, it's like, a, once again, with the other stuff, it's very little risk, potentially helpful. Um, I usually do B6, 50 milligrams, IVQ6, thymine, 100 milligrams daily, and then I do magnesium, 2 to 4 grams uh, IV daily as well. Um, one of the more interesting pieces um, with ethylene glycol exposures is the, the glycolate uh, metabolite can also call a falsely elevated um, lactate. And this is due to the lactate oxidase enzyme that's used in a lot of blood gas analyzers. Um, I've had, you know, these double digit lactates where they come in to like 15, you know, 13, 16, you're like, wow, what do I have in front of me? And this patient doesn't look too bad. I mean, they look, you know, you know, like they're out of it a little bit, but the, for that kind of lactate, no. Um, and so, you know, what you can do is, is you can check it on a different analyzer. And what you can do is, is you can do it with a, there's an enzyme called lactate dehydrogenase enzyme assay. Instead, you can call your lab, they'll be able to tell you what enzyme they have in the machine. And that'll kind of help you determine if the lactate you're looking at is real or not. And if you're in the case where you have these exposures. Um, as far as other manifestations from oxalate, this can, you know, because we're binding up calcium, hypocalcemia, um, this can be, you know, present in some pretty uh, big exposures. So it's probably worth getting an ionized calcium in these patients as well. Um, and the other thing to watch out for with profound um, hypocalcemia is that you get this prolonged QT interval. Okay. And now we're talking about going into a ventricular arrhythmia, so they're pretty bad. Um, other considerations is you can get like, cerebral and pulmonary edema, 
Um, and I, I've definitely had seizures. I've definitely got bedside to do checks on patients and I'm doing like grip strength. And, you know, while they're grabbing my hands, they start seizing. <laughs> scared, the, scared the hell out of me. But uh, yeah, some weird things can happen with these toxic alcohols. They're all very different. You talk to, you know, a hundred different toxicologists they are going to give you a hundred crazies. So that gets metabolized by alcohol dehydrogenase as well. Um, acetone gives us this um, which is the metabolite, gives us this very classic ketosis without acidosis picture. And this is pretty diagnostic for these exposures. These are pretty straightforward. These folks will likely be very inebriated and drunk in your, in your ED. Um, and this is due to, when you look at these alcohols, the more carbons you add to these structures, the greater the CMS penetration, the greater the inebriation effect. So um, people with isopropanol, they'll be very um, inebriated, and even with ethylene glycol, they'll be fairly inebriated as well. Actually, probably twice as inebriated as with regular um, ethanol alcohol. Um, but when you get these methanol patients, they may not appear as inebriated. They may be a little more groggy. They may be a little more clairvoyant um, at times. Um, so there's a, a wide spectrum you can get with these folks. Um, but with it's common to see GI upset and hemorrhagic abacus does occur obviously you know, an irritant to the GI tract. So just keep an eye out for that. Um, and a, a few other things to watch out for is if you can get a falsely elevated serum creatinine, um, this is due to acetone basically interfering with um, colorimetric jack reaction. And so you get this falsely elevated serum creatinine. So really just you know pay attention to the patient's urinary output is an, an easy fix for that. Um, you know, my big things for these patients is they just really need excellent supportive care. So I just ensure they get, you know, resus with plenty of IV fluids and, you know, throwing things in like uh, PPIs or H2RAs um, to help with the GI upset work uh, really well with these folks as well. Um, but, you know, like I said, you know, you got three different toxic alcohols that can, their toxicity can really widely vary depending on, you know, how much and where they are in your presentation. But just also keep in mind a lot of these folks are, are pretty severe alcoholics um, a, a good proportion of the time. So keep in mind that you may be dealing with, you know, a potential rip roaring metabolic acidosis in the future, but, you know, keep an eye for, you know, for those folks that aren't getting into that, they're going to have some alcohol withdrawal. So just make sure you're monitoring for that. Yeah, I think that's a good point you bring up. And it's like you really, you really went into not only just the kind of the background of some of these alcohols and some of the pathophysiology, but you also in that same time really talked about the clinical presentation of all of them. So I think like you really kind of honed in on the difference between the methanols and ethylene glycol and, and isoprenol. It's like all these different ones present slightly different. I think the casual ED person, you know, we, we just think of them all together, but it, it seems to be some little... Some variabilities, and I think from the patho standpoint, that's where you know tox is just a cool, a cool specialty. Like you, you started getting into some of the, the, the patho and in, in the toxicology, you know, it just makes it pretty, pretty freaking cool. So I won't, I won't dive deeper into their clinical presentation because you really kind of honed in on that. And you mentioned some treatment, but I really want to kind of take a moment to really dive down these things because again, I always say I hate bicarb except for tox. So tox got all the love <laughs> for me because it makes sense. Um, when we, when we do things just because we think it fixed the number, that's one thing versus like, oh, from an actual clinical standpoint, we're going to make the patient going to improve and we're actually doing something. So, again, my the bicarb is safe in toxicology. Your benzos <laughs> and bicarb are safe. <laughs> so let's kind of transition now into the, the treatment of poachers. You made some really good points about that, but I want to kind of get a little deeper and really kind of 
honing in on each one of these things in a pharmacologic standpoint? And can you kind of share your approach to treating these alcohol um, poisonings? And what do the guidelines say about these things? So again, we can really go back and really just say, okay, we found what it was. We've diagnosed it. Now it's time to do something about this. And what will be that 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 mindset you go into and give us some resources to kind of help us treat these sort of casual ED person? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the first thing I like to do with these folks, you know, whether we're, we're aware that this is or confirmed that it's an actual toxic alcohol that we have in our hands or not, the first thing I like to do is, is you know, resuscitate these folks with the IV fluids. I bolus them, start some maintenance fluids. These folks are usually dehydrated, their volume down, um, and this is either from decreased intake or the increased output, you know, from vomiting um, and whatnot. So the first thing we like to do is, is get fluids in them and start there. Um, for labs, um, the first we usually jump into is, you know, for great basics is get a BMP, get an ethanol, and then get an awesome. Um, and we're doing this so that you can check an awesome gap. Make sure all these labs are drawn at the same time. That's also um, important for this process. Um, and then you can, you're going to initially trend these things Q4 hours um, to see which way the anion gap and the osm gap are trending. Uh, knowing this is not the greatest sensitivity specificity, sometimes it's the best we have. And I'll go on to that a little more further on why, you know, it, these are simple tests or cheap tests and we can get these typically in most spots. Um, but in a toxic alcohol, if you're early on in your course and you see a high osm gap, and a low anion gap. As time passes, that awesome gap will drop as the toxic alcohol is being metabolized to that toxic metabolite, the thing we're really worried about, and the anion gap rises. Um, so that's why we're kind of trending this, these basic labs, um, and that's where we're looking to see where things go. If you can, get a VBG and a lactate in, in, in these folks as well, and consider an ionized uh, calcium if you think you may have an ethylene glycol exposure. So what I was alluding to earlier is we can get into like, okay, let's go get levels, you know, let's test for the toxic alcohol. So we'll talk about that. So you want to grab what's called a volatile panel, and that measures from isopropyl alcohol and it's metabolite um, acetone. And then you're going to get for a separate test, an ethylene glycol is uh, done via gas chromatography. Now, depending on your institution, they may kind of lump both these tests together in the same order set, but keep in mind that the ethylene glycol test is different. Um, there are ethylene glycol tests that are done by amino assay, but these have a lot of, you know, a lot of false positives that occur with these. We want the gas chromatography. Um, so when we talk about these, these labs, not many places can do these anymore. Um, they typically are send outs and they may take a week or longer to result. I mean, here in Arizona, I've had you know, toxic alcohol panels sent out and they've been sent to North Carolina, they've been sent to Montana. <laughs> it just depends on the health system and where they send things and where they have labs drawn and what they have contracts with versus, you know, if I'm at my institution, we can get a turnaround usually between 12 and 24 hours, but still send one, especially if you're going to be starting antidotal treatment, which leads to, okay, how do we treat these folks now? Like what's the antidotes? Where are the treatments? Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to block the conversion of the parent alcohol to the toxin metabolite and the toxicity that comes with it. So for years, ethanol is actually the answer for this because alcohol dehydrogenase prefers ethanol 4 to 1 over methanol and 8 to 1 over ethylene glycol. 
And to achieve this blockade, you need to have ethanol levels roughly greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter, and they were using IV continuous infusion. Um, but then Femepazole came along, uh, which has an insanely higher infinity for these, these toxic alcohols, almost 80,000 times greater. And this is easier to do. It's, it's dosing is done Q12 hours, IV, boom. Um, although one thing you need to keep an eye on, if you do start folks on this on a femepazole uh, treatment, uh, you're going to do a 15 mg per kg load, and then you're going to jump to a 10 mg per kg, Q12 hours, and you're going to do this time four doses. After those four doses are up and you're still treating with femepazole, you have to increase the dose to 15 mg per kg every 12 hours. And this is indefinitely for the duration of therapy. And this is because femepazole auto-induces its own metabolism somewhere around 36 to 50 hours after starting therapy. So you have to keep that in mind. And also in mind with methazole, um, remember you're blocking ethanol um, dehydrogenase, and this is only effective if you want the parent alcohol to metabolize, but you have to not, you got to know where you are in your time point. So, you know, it may be early on, it may be later on, or maybe you don't have an ethylene, you know, an ethylene glycol or methanol, um, you might just have somebody who's drunk on ethanol or or even isopropanol. Um, and if you do that and you block them, you know, you're just prolonging your buzz. You know, <laughs> if you want a cheap night out, like get dosed with some femepazole before you hit the town. Um, so keep that kind of in mind. Um, the other thing is that when you have a patient that has ethanol on board, around if I have you know level higher than that 100 I like to do it around 150 milligrams per deciliter and that's so you give pharmacy enough time you know to to get it made to get it down to the patient and get it started um, and if you're far above that number let's say your patient comes in and you know he's got like an ethanol level like 400 you're like okay I have some time now that you're effectively blocked but you know how much time until I you know can I do I what labs can I do how much time and I usually go with somewhere around metabolize uh, about 20 to 25 milligrams per deciliter per hour for quick easy math it's going to be dependent on the person and how often they drink but I generally use that to kind of guide me so that when I get to that 125 boom okay I'm ready. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll trend those ethanol levels based upon my just estimations. Um, the last one that we have is hemodialysis, and whether it's a parent alcohol or it's a toxic metabolite, HD is going to straight yank that out. Um, was it eat? Is that what the kids are saying nowadays? Eat it. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. Typically, uh, <laughs> this is going to run in four-hour sessions. Is tolerated. Sometimes you have to do more than one session. A lot of folks will need it. Um, your patient's also going to be, you know, being agent that's also dialyzed out. So you got to think, you know, whether you're using ethanol or femepazole, you're going to have to dose adjust. And if you're using femepazole, they have uh, good directions on how to do that in regards to um, hemodialysis before, during, and after, how you can make sure your patient's going to be blocked effectively. Um, so, you know, when you're thinking about whether or not, you know, feme you know hemodialysis needs to be uh, started, there's two things. One, you can call poison control. You can come speak with us. Your tax dollars are paying for this. <laughs> this is a free service for you. <laughs> well, not for, I guess, you know, it's free, but, you know, your tax dollars are paying for it. Um, we can help you kind of go through the case details and see if and when your patient may benefit from hemodialysis. Um, secondly, you 
and just check out the XTRIP guidelines, XTRIP-workgroup.com. And this is um, a set of guidelines where a group of toxicologists and nephrologists got together. They reviewed a whole bunch of literature and they came up to provide recommendations of when to perform hemodialysis and methanol and ethylene glycol exposures. Um, I'll let you check them out on your own. They're quite detailed, um, but they do have a lot of considerations regarding hemodialysis. When should it be started and then when to stop it? But I'll give you like two off the top of my head of when you should start. No question, like every single time. Um, for me, knowing methanol is, has those serious uh, CNS uh, effects that can happen. Um, thinking about the basal ganglia and the putamen and the hemorrhages and all that stuff. For me, if I have one of these patients and uh, we have a suspicion or we know it's going to be a meth you know, methanol exposure, we start the block and, you know, I'm talking about dialyzing these folks immediately. And I call nephrology. I say, hey, um, I have a patient that needs a dose dialysis. Here's what's going on. And then we go from there. Very aggressive with those folks. Um, for ethylene glycol, um, if you have a patient that has, um, you know, pretty advanced CKD or really terrible uh, AKI, you're going to need to block and dialyze them as well. Um, and this is just due to the prolonged renal elimination that's going to occur. You know, uh, there's in the past, there's been, you know, a lot of folks have been able to do, you know, with ethylene glycol, they've been able to be blocked. There's a couple studies looking at this and they do fine with it. Um, but if you have really, really bad AKI, you know, it's, it's you know, you're going to have to get nephrology involved and toxicology to kind of help you make that decision because um, there are some finer points with that. Um, and whether you're doing hemodialysis or methazole or ethanol, um, I generally, you know, you get to a level of less than 20 milligrams per deciliter, uh, regardless of what alcohol it is. Some will say 25 for one, some will say 20 for the other. I just use 20. It's a good, safe number. Um, so treatment is pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. <laughs> it makes, makes it a little easier for, for, for the guys like us. So you guys have all the stuff in you guys' brain, so. Yeah. All right, that really hits kind of the the, the high points of, of treatment for the most part of of these agents. Anything in, in addition that we should do differently, depending on on these alcohols, as far as the different treatment options, or that's pretty much kind of our big tool, a bucket of tools that we would use for all of these agents. Those are the big ones. So yeah, you're going to want to be able to block, and you know, it depends on where the patient's at, and then you know, then we have hemodialysis. Those are the big things. It's block or pull it out is what we have. Yeah, Perfect. those are the big things. Perfect. Yeah, I, I love it because it's like it's a cool thing and you got all these different color urines and stuff like that. You got all this stuff going on, but it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's easy to, to put a nice little famepazole in. I always say, uh, y'all ask me, why is there beer in the, in, in, in the pharmacy? It's like, well, <laughs> it just depends yeah, on yeah. what we have going on here. So if you don't have famepazole, it's like, well, I've actually heard somebody from a poison control center in a rural area say, hey, you guys don't have, you know, you don't have beer. You don't have access to it. It's a blizzard outside. Use hand sanitizer. And I was like, whoa, okay, that's that's getting out there. No, we've done it. And I've had, you know, I've had cases where we don't have anything. You know, the place is in a dry county and it's this like little clinic. And like we've done the same thing too. We're like, hey, what hand sanitizer do you have at your facility? And we're going through package inserts. Or I've had nurses like go to their homes. Like we, we've had this. We're like, we go to your house. We know they have alcohol there and uh, they've gone, they've gone to their homes. They brought the, you know, there's their stash of booze back. And, you know, there we go. We're dosing the patient with that. And so we can get, you know, get them transferred to better definitive care. Um, 
so yeah, these things happen for sure. Absolutely. Well, again, that was all super informative and people are going to use this in different ways. But any final thoughts about this? Because, again, I think it's a cool topic, but it's one of those things where, like, for you guys, this is like bread and butter. We found out what it is. It's nice to think about it. It's pretty easy to treat for the, for the most part. But any final thoughts? Yeah, uh, history is a big part of, like, what we do in talks. And I harp on this with a lot of things. History is so important. Um, you know, how was the patient found? Where were they? What were they doing? Have they done anything like this before? You know, I've had, you know, where the EMS comes in and go, yeah, we picked them up at Walmart. They were drinking, you know, antifreeze in the aisle. Uh, I've had, I've had this happen a few times actually, um, you know, or they're found down next to the actual containers or yes, they have done this before. So get the history too, because history is going to tell you a lot because, you know, whether you're starting from Epizol or transitioning to HD. You know, this patient's going to be getting a lot of, you know, expensive, supportive and antidotal care, um, but they can also progress potentially to something that's going to be really bad. And that's why, you know, we can be very aggressive with these things up front. So history is so, so critical. And we want to kind of have an idea if, you know, where are we in this toxicity? Because sometimes these patients just come in, they're uptunded, pH is 6.6, they're intubated, and that's it. That's all we have. That looks like a lot of things. That can be a lot of scary things that come in through your EB. So you always try to get that history. Um, and if that big trouble is at your doorstep and you think you really have this toxic alcohol, like, call control. We will help you sit through all this little thing that you need to some monitoring and when certain therapies might be of use and, and what adjunctive therapies could potentially be helpful. Um, but in general, if you have a toxic alcohol in your differential, I have a low threshold for starting it. You know, it's one of those things where I've never regretted starting from Epizol because once you start it, boom, you got yourself 12 hours. You got 12 hours to get labs. You got 12 hours to get more history. Um, you can get your patient fluid resuscitated. You can trend some labs. You can trend that osmin and, and anion gap um, and, you know, ethanol levels and, you know, and VBGs and lactates and all that stuff. So you buy yourself time to really, you know, do some more to and hopefully get the patient going where they should be. Absolutely, man. I thank you for coming on and talking to us about this. This is another one of those great episodes where I just feel like I'm just so happy to be part of this podcast. We get so much information and hey, people are going to use this to study. People are going to use this for patients. So you never, you just never know how it's going to go. So I appreciate you coming on for talking about all of this stuff. All the information we have here is going to be on our show notes. Uh, anything that we, we have, you guys can always reach out to us. But I'm going to close it out the same way I close out every single episode, guys. Uh, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You're going to work in the ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.